Before we dig into this week's case, I want to talk about why I'm covering it. The murder of Stephanie Dubay was suggested many times. Her death was awful. This is likely one of the worst cases we will discuss on the podcast. And the brutality of her murder? That's one reason why I shied away from covering it. The case is gruesome. There is no way to get through the story without an explicit description of what was done with her. Which, honestly, it's not something I enjoy sharing. But there are recent developments in her case, which means it's time to talk about it. Because it's important that we not forget what happened to a spirited 15-year-old girl in the summer of 1990. In 2016, a United States Supreme Court ruling meant that Michigan needed to review the more than 350 inmates who were sentenced as juveniles to serve life without parole. We've seen the effects of the Supreme Court ruling in other cases. Cases like the murder of 15-year-old Becky Stowe back in 1993. We talked about Becky's case in episode 104. Her killer, Rob Lehman? He was 16 at the time of her murder. He was sentenced as an adult for his crimes, and he was released from prison last year. Other cases that came under review include that of Kevin Boyd. Boyd was 16 years old in 1994 when he and his mother murdered his father so that his mother, well, so she could collect a half a million dollar insurance policy. His mother said that Kevin was not there at the time of the murder, but that he did give her keys, allowing her access to the residence. Kevin Boyd was 42 years old when granted parole in January of 2020. He spent nearly 25 years in prison. His mother, she continues to serve her life sentence. Because Stephanie DeBay was murdered by two people, one of them a 15-year-old boy, this case came under review as well. Today's story takes us to Warren, Michigan. Warren is Detroit's largest suburb. It's also the third largest city in Michigan. Located just north of Detroit in Macomb County, it's a mix of sprawling neighborhoods as well as automotive and military outposts. The General Motors Technical Center and the U.S. Army Detroit Arsenal, they are both located in Warren. Growing up, I saw Warren as a family city. I had friends that lived there. I had family that lived there. But 32 years ago, Warren became the site of one of the most gruesome crimes ever to happen in Metro Detroit. So come with me to July of 1990, when two women walk into the Warren police station and hand a parcel to the desk sergeant an event that led to multiple arrests and a media circus. In June of 1990, 15-year-old Stephanie DeBay left her father's home in St. Clair to spend the summer with her mother in Clinton Township. Stephanie, who had just completed grade 9 at a Christian school, she had her heart set on getting a tattoo. Stephanie had something very specific in mind. She wanted a rose tattoo. I don't know if Stephanie shared this information with her father that she wanted a tattoo, but she did ask her mother for permission. Not surprisingly, her mother said no way. And the two argued, possibly about the tattoo, probably about other things as well, and Stephanie took off. On June 26, 1990, her mother, Mary Zielke, she filed a missing persons report with local police. 
After staying with friends and couch surfing for a few days, Stephanie found herself at a house on Jean Road in Warren. Jean Road is located just north of I-696 and west of Hoover. If you were to take a drive down Jean Road, it looks the same today as it did 30 years ago, a street of tidy, brick, ranch-style homes. The house where Stephanie was staying was occupied by several people, including a 21-year-old tattoo artist from Saginaw named Jamie Jimbo Rodriguez and his cousin, 15-year-old Augustin Augie Pena. And it's my understanding that this house was either owned or rented by Augie's mother, Betty. The house had a reputation in the community as a party spot, and some news articles describe the home as known to Warren police for suspected drug activity about a year before the murder. Doing some digging on social media, I found a few people saying that in 89 and 90, they went to that house, and while they were there, they bought marijuana from Augie's mother. But keep in mind, this comes from the social media rumor mill, so it may or may not be accurate. And it looks like both Jimbo and Augie have ties to the city of Saginaw. Jimbo lived there with his family, and Augie may have briefly attended Saginaw schools. But in the summer of 1990, both of them were staying at the Jean Road house in Warren with Augie's mother. And at 15, Augie Pena was the same age as Stephanie Dubay, and while she was an average student at a local private school, per coverage in the Detroit Free Press, Pena had been expelled from Centerline High School for persistent disobedience. After leaving her mom's place, while Stephanie was still couch surfing her way through Macomb County, she called her father. Her dad, stepmom, and two half-sisters, they were preparing to leave for a Florida vacation. Stephanie's dad asked where she was, and he said that he would come get her, that she could join the family trip, but Stephanie declined. She told her dad that she was okay, and they made a plan to get together after the vacation. And listeners, my daughter is almost 15 years old, so I have a lot of questions about this conversation, and I mean a lot of questions. But we don't know the entire story or the entire situation, so we're just going to move along. In early July, after more than a week away from her mother's house on Teal Circle in Clinton Township, Stephanie finally got the tattoo she'd been hoping for, but it wasn't a rose. Instead, the number 666 was inked above her left breast. Pena's cousin, Jimbo Rodriguez, he did the work himself. In addition to working as a tattoo artist, Jimbo had several tattoos of his own, including a pentagram on his chest. That night, Stephanie called friends to tell them about the experience, to brag about having a tattoo. But she told them something else as well. She said that she no longer felt comfortable staying in the house on Jean Road. She said that Rodriguez was weird, and she thought that he didn't like her. An acquaintance of Stephanie's who lived in nearby Centerline, he offered her a ride back to her mother's place in Clinton Township, but Stephanie declined. Late that evening, Stephanie talked with another 15-year-old. I believe this girl's name was Beth and that she was the girlfriend of Augie Pena. Stephanie asked if she could stay at her house. She said she didn't feel safe staying at the house on Jean Road any longer. But the girl told Stephanie it wasn't an option. 
It sounds like the other girl's parents were against the idea of an overnight guest, especially one arriving so late. On the morning of Wednesday, July 11th, 21-year-old Jimbo and 15-year-old Augie are sitting at the kitchen table when Jimbo had an idea. Hey, let's kill stuff. The pair decided that they would kill her in the basement of the home, and they took a few minutes to prepare the area, laying newspapers on the floor to soak up any blood, and then they gathered garbage bags. Then they went to the kitchen where they selected knives. They woke Stephanie and led her downstairs to the basement of the home, where they attacked. Jimbo said that he held Stephanie while Augie, his young cousin, stabbed her. When the dust cleared, Stephanie was dead. She'd been stabbed nearly a dozen times. And Jimbo took his time with her body. He severed the index finger on her right hand. He used a knife to cut out her tongue and another knife to open her abdominal cavity so he could remove her spleen. Having mutilated her remains, Jimbo Rodriguez went to work on her head. And listeners, this is very graphic and very gross. Jimbo carefully detached Stephanie's head from the body. Once he'd separated the head from the torso, he decided he wanted to skin the head. So Jimbo went to work. He used a sharp knife to peel the skin and scalp away from her skull. He also cut away her eyelids, so her large blue eyes stared lifelessly into the distance. And when he was done, he placed the head in the basement freezer and carried Stephanie's finger upstairs with him. Jimbo wanted to keep Stephanie's head as a souvenir, and he decided that he would wear the bones from her finger as a necklace. The murder and mutilation took place around noon, and the two cousins, Jimbo and Augie, they spent the afternoon cleaning up the mess. Stephanie's body was assaulted again. Limbs were severed, making it easier for them to put body parts in trash bags, which they buried in the backyard. The rest of Stephanie's remains were stashed in a cream-colored Chevrolet Monte Carlo parked in the home's garage. Later that afternoon, two women came to the house. They were friends with Jimbo. Kim and Valerie. Jimbo said he had something cool to show them. And they knew Jimbo was weird and maybe a little scary, but he wasn't dangerous, though. Just another tough guy. So they thought. When the women came into the house, he proudly led them downstairs to the basement and opened the freezer. The skinless head of 15-year-old Stephanie DeBay looked back at them. Strands of blonde hair floated around the skull. The women acted quickly. When Jimbo went upstairs, one of them got a bag and loaded the head into it. Then they fled the house, headed for the Warren Police Department, just two short miles away. Minutes after a remorseless Jimbo Rodriguez showed off the skinned and severed head of Stephanie DeBay to two female friends, the quick-thinking young women removed the head from the freezer and snuck it out of the house in a shopping bag. They delivered the head to the desk of the Warren Police Department. And listeners, can you imagine being handed a skinned head in a shopping bag? And I feel like they had to bring the head to the police department. Because if they had just shown up with this wild story about a severed head and a freezer, it's possible that the police would not have believed them. Within hours of Stephanie's head arriving at Warren Police, both Jimbo and Augie are in custody. Neither of them denied their roles in her murder. 
Jimbo had the idea to kill her, and he held Stephanie while his cousin stabbed her. Eventually, Jimbo changed his story. It looked like he was trying to protect Augie, making it sound like he acted alone. But since both of them talked to police, investigators knew the truth. Both Jimbo and Augie participated in the planning, the murder, and the dismemberment. During an interview in the days following his arrest, Rodriguez said he knew he would likely spend the rest of his life in prison. He said he had no regrets, no bad dreams, nothing. He said, quote, It's not like I'm feeling bad inside for it. And listeners, the press went wild over the case. It had everything. The murder of a teenage girl, satanic overtones, remember the 666 tattoo on Stephanie's chest, and then Jimbo had a pentagram tattoo of his own? Throw in that police found a book about witchcraft at the house, and many tapes of, quote, heavy metal music. And then the way that Stephanie was killed and dismembered? Investigators? Even the coroner himself said, This appeared to be a ritual killing. So this story was filled with the sort of attention-grabbing details that reporters, and, let's face it, consumers, just love. A pretty teenager from a Christian school, satanic overtones, a beheading. In the days after Stephanie's murder, her father, Robert DeBay, he was very upset with the press, and he vented his frustrations in an interview with the Times-Herald newspaper. Stephanie's father had taken his second wife and their two daughters to Florida on vacation. And as they were driving back to Michigan on July 13th, they learned of Stephanie's murder via news reports on the car radio. DeBay said it was shocking to learn of his daughter's death in this manner, and that instead of driving home, they drove to the residence of Mary Zilke, his ex-wife, Stephanie's mother. She confirmed that what they'd heard was true. Stephanie was gone. While the idea of satanic cults and ritual killings committed to appease the Dark Lord, that seems overblown today. Well, it seems overblown for most of us. But the 80s and early 90s were rife with satanic panic stories about cults and boogeymen and bad guys doing terrible things. The murder of Stephanie DeBay appeared to be a prime example of a satanic-inspired ritual killing. Not helping the situation, the house on Jean Road where the murder occurred was repeatedly vandalized in the weeks following the murder. In August of 1990, a fire was intentionally set at the home. In this case, all the nasty bits were broadcast far and wide. Could they be Satanists? Was Stephanie sacrificed? Were evil forces at work in the suburbs of Detroit? Jimbo, who enjoyed the attention, He used a payphone at the Macomb County Jail to call the press and give an interview. And during that interview, he said, yeah, he'd been a practicing Satanist since he was 15 years old. The truth? The truth was less glamorous. Stephanie was a vulnerable teenager preyed upon by a cruel man with a criminal record. Jamie Jimbo Rodriguez, he was known to police. He was already on probation from a 1989 arson case. And law enforcement in Saginaw, they wanted to talk with him about another, less serious case involving kidnapping and auto theft. They had a few questions for him about the time he'd allegedly forced a woman to drive him from Saginaw to Warren at Knife Point. Then he told her he would find her, and he would kill her if she reported the incident. 
Once the cousins were in custody, they were transferred to the Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ypsilanti, where they were tested and evaluated. Both Peña and Rodriguez were found competent to stand trial. After the evaluations were complete, Peña was sent to a youth home, and Rodriguez was housed at the Macomb County Jail as they awaited trial. While Rodriguez was an adult and Peña was a minor, both were charged as adults with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and mutilation of a human body. The two would be tried separately in the summer of 1991. Rodriguez was tried first. His lawyer pushed hard for a not guilty by reason of mental defect ruling. But the judge did not allow that to be considered. Remember, he was at the Center for Forensic Psychiatry following the murders, where he was examined by a psychologist who testified in court that Jimbo was sane and did not have multiple personalities. One of the most damning exhibits shown during the trial was video taken of Stephanie's autopsy. The video was shown to jurors and spectators alike. An up-close examination of the injuries Stephanie sustained, how her head was severed, the skin cut away from her scalp and skull. They saw her lidless blue eyes peering dully from their sockets. The video lasted about 10 minutes, and many in the gallery looked away. But the jury? They did not have that luxury. Rodriguez was found guilty on all three charges, sentenced to life without parole. After Jimbo's trial, one of the jurors spoke with the press. The juror revealed that when the mental illness defense was stripped away, it was very easy to find him guilty on all charges. In September of 1991, Augustin Pena was put on trial. The now 16-year-old defendant was tried as an adult. At the time of his arrest, Pena had long black hair that flowed past his shoulders. At the trial, his hair was neatly trimmed in a more traditional style. Like Jimbo before him, Pena was also found guilty of all three charges. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Before we go forward, I want to spend a couple of minutes on the background and history of Jimbo Rodriguez. He was initially known to police after an incident in August of 1987, just two weeks after his birthday. This incident happened in Saginaw, Michigan on August 30th. Jimbo's mother? She picked up a gun and shot herself in front of Jimbo and his father. They called 911 and she was transported to St. Luke's Hospital, but she was pronounced dead on arrival. When informed of his mother's death by hospital staff, Jimbo became upset and physically agitated. He punched a wall and threw things. He was verbally abusive towards staff. His behavior was distressing to the other patients. Police were called and he was charged with disorderly conduct. That was the start of his legal troubles. Troubles that culminated in the bizarre, ritualistic murder of Stephanie DeBay. And that was the end of the story. Stephanie was buried, her killers behind bars for the rest of their lives. Until the fall of 2019, because after almost 30 years in prison, Pena's sentence was up for review, just like the United States Supreme Court intended by their ruling. At his hearing, a psychologist spoke well of Pena, describing him as a model prisoner, a man with family waiting to assist him upon his release. While incarcerated, Pena completed his high school diploma and learned sign language. He worked translating Braille books for the blind, 
His prison record was very clean. He was never a problem for guards or for other inmates. The Macomb County prosecutor, he spoke out against releasing Pena from prison, citing the horrific nature of the crime he committed. 45-year-old Augustin Agui Pena was released from prison in December of 2020 after serving almost 30 years behind bars. According to the Otis website, an offender tracking database, he was paroled to the Saginaw area where he resides with members of his family. Jamie Jimbo Rodriguez, he remains incarcerated near Ionia. He is serving life without parole. Valerie Rapson, one of the women who found Stephanie's remains in the basement freezer, she passed away back in 2014. And Stephanie DeBay, she is buried at the Clinton Grove Cemetery in Clinton Township. This episode was researched and written by me, with audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice of the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please... Be safe.